Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you're in person or, and notice I'm getting better at looking at the camera now, or on the live stream. See, I do that with the eye contact. We welcome you. We are thrilled uh, that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. And one quick message for those of you watching on the live stream whether it's Facebook or YouTube, whatever platform, check in. Let us know that you're here. Uh, let us know that you're worshiping with us. Um, Maybe not in person. We want to make you feel a part of the community, though. And so we would appreciate you doing that. And let me wish all of you dads, granddads, great-granddads. Should I stop there? <laughs> Happy Father's Day. From one father to another, I just wish you all a blessed Father's Day and hope it's a uh, rich one. We recognize that, like any holiday, it's not the same for everyone. Know that the Lord knows our experience, the Lord knows our heart. He has compassion on us, he cares for us, so we wish you a happy Father's Day. A couple of announcements. If you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you and invite you to pick up one of the visitor I'm not sure what the technical term for it is. I call it swag, just because it's good swag. You know, the tumblers are in there, all sorts of information. We would love for you to pick that up and have that get to know us. And if you're sitting on the end of the row, start the friendship register down for everyone. Sign in. Let us know you're here. Gives us the opportunity to build a friendship with you. So sign it in, pass it down, pass it back, all of that kind of stuff. A couple of reminders of different things. Today concludes the baby bottle campaign that we've been doing. There are still several outstanding bottles. We want to invite you to bring them back either today or even if you uh, forgot today, bring it by the office tomorrow morning. Let's make tomorrow the deadline. So if you have that, bring it on back and do that. Next Sunday also is the deadline for officer nominations for any men that you feel in your heart. You've looked at 1 Timothy 3, you've looked at Titus 1, you've given this serious prayer, you have sought their willingness to be nominated. Turn those in by next Sunday. We would appreciate that as well. I also want to remind you, and there's an announcement about this in the bulletin, that we would like to restart, kind of have a re-kickoff of our ESL ministry. ESL stands for English as a Second Language. And Russell Puppy will be heading that up again. And so, Russell, raise your hand. See, Russell? See the hand waving? He's the guy you see if you have any questions. So just going to him doesn't sign you up, doesn't commit you yet. So don't be scared to talk to Russell. What it does is if you have any questions regarding that, what the commitment is like. What is it like to be a teacher? What is it like to be an assistant teacher? What is the training that is offered? 
I had lunch with Russell this week. He's a wealth of knowledge on this topic. He will tell you anything and everything you need to know. And so if we're going to do this and kick this off again, we really do need volunteers. So I would encourage you uh, to see him and do that. So there are other announcements. I'm not going to read through every one, but uh, we welcome you to do that uh, in your leisure, hopefully not during worship. And now, as the prelude is played, let's prepare our hearts to worship the Lord this morning. Thank you so much, Amy. Our call to worship this morning comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Father, we do give you thanks, and we do praise your glorious name. And we ask, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
that you would join with us. Bless us with your presence. Fill us with your love. Help us to know your power and might. We give you thanks and we praise your name through the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the great hymn of the faith, Come Thou Almighty King. Amy, I don't know the technical phrase for this, but I love when we get to the last verse and you play that, is it called modulation? Hey, I got one right today. I love when we modulate. It just makes me feel, here we go, throne of grace. We're worshiping the king. How rich that is, we get to sing out. I invite us together as God's people to also declare what it is that we believe, what unites us in the faith. And this morning, our confession of faith is from the Nicene Creed, so I invite us to recite the creed together. My friends, what is it that we believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, 
and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Stand together and sing, Thy mercy, my God. Join with me in our time of pastoral prayer. We will first recite together the prayer that our Savior taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Father, that you are our Father. And the fact that you are our Father, not mine, not yours, but ours together, for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, unites us together, makes us one, makes us a covenant family. I think, Jesus, of your prayer before you went into the Garden of Gethsemane, before you went to your greatest challenge and greatest trial of your life, what did you pray for the church? You prayed that the church would be one. And then you related it back to your father saying, as the father is in me and I in him, may we all be one. Father, forgive us of our sin, of taking so lightly what is on your heart and what is your passion. Father, you gave Jesus, your son, a bride, and Jesus went into the world. We so quickly and maybe even glibly say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But let's step back and think about what does that mean? You gave your son to purchase a bride for himself. So we ask your forgiveness when we are divided, when we don't listen to each other when we don't love each other, when we're so quick to get our opinion across or to be right, rather than to show empathy or compassion. Bring to our attention, bring to our heart how it makes you feel and help us to recognize that you being our Father is bigger than just the assurance of heaven and the assurance of salvation. It is that but so much more. That as our Father, you give life to your bride, you nurture your bride, you protect your bride, you cover your bride, you nourish and feed your bride. The passion of your heart is your bride. And so may we love the church, Jesus, as you love the church. And so we pray for the church today. We pray for those who are hurting and can't be with us. We pray for those who are going through difficult times and trying times. We pray for those facing uncertainties, physical uncertainties or financial or emotional, whatever realm they may be in. We pray, oh, comfort, comforting God that you would comfort them. We pray for the holiness of the church. We ask, Father, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we long for the coming of your kingdom. Father, thank you so much for this privilege, that part of worship is that we together, I may be the one verbally, but hopefully we're all praying together. We are communing with our living God, asking your blessing, not just a good psychological feeling, but we are praying our Father's power, the King's power, down into this realm, down into the earth. Move in our midst to revive our hearts, to fall in love afresh with you. We pray all of these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our Redeemer and friend. Amen.
Amen. Choir, praise team, thank you so much. You know, a couple weeks ago when I met with Amy, she said that uh, there was a new version of the doxology they wanted to sing. And I said, let's go for it. Now I'm like, yes, let's do it again. That was awesome. As we approach God's word this morning, I know I need prayer. And whether it's the preacher or as the messenger or all of us, because I'm, I'm kind of in this dual role of I'm both proclaiming the word and hearing the word at the same time, uh, we need the spirit of God to be our main teacher. We need the spirit of God to descend and show us the loveliness and the beauty of Christ. Let's ask him to do that. We come before you, Father. We thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. And we ask now that you would, by the Spirit, be our teacher, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would know the hope to which you've called us, the inheritance of the glorious riches of the saints, and the immeasurable power that is at work even right now, in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Lord, work in us to show us the beauty of Christ. We depend upon you. We desperately cry out to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are departing from the book of Romans for one week. Yes, I like to do things. See, I keep it, I keep it, what, what's, the, what's the best way to word this? I'm not afraid to depart from what we're doing and go different directions. I'll keep you on your toes. That's what I'm looking to say. See, you'll kind of never know week to week. What is he doing? You think you have me figured out. Not quite. And I'll tell you why we're doing this in a second. But let's turn our attention to the word of God. I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to pick up at verse 26 and read down to chapter 4 and verse 7. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. 
Today is Father's Day, and I have to admit, I woke up this morning missing my son, Joel, a little bit. He's still down in Daytona, and so, but I heard from him. He wished his dad a happy, bir happy birthday. Listen to me. I told you I'll keep you on your toes. Who's listening? Happy Father's Day. It was great to hear from him already. But I was thinking about memories, and a special memory I have with Joel is Joel grew up playing basketball. Loved playing basketball. And back when Evie and I were planting a church in Oklahoma, one of the things I did for community outreach, it was kind of, I have to admit, being in ministry is a tremendous blessing because there's so many, and church planting was so much fun because you got to combine church and family. You got to combine so much. So one of the things we did for a community outreach is that I coached Joel's basketball team. Now, Lou, I was not the coach you are. But I had my whistle, and I was ready to go. But I think what I was as a coach was, I think I embarrassed Joel a little too often. Because while I coached the team and drew up the plays and did all this, when Joel made a play on the court, you think I'm energetic up here? That's my boy! Do you see that one? Number three, he's mine. He came from me. That's my boy. You see, turn up to the fans and the stands. That's right there. He shot the three. That's my boy. He did that. You know, Joel would be like, Dad, Dad, please stop. Why did I do that? Because I was proud of him. That's my son. I delighted in him. And I didn't care who knew it. I wanted everyone to know that's my son. Now, today is Father's Day, and today is not going to be, this is not a Father's Day sermon. So moms, don't get upset. I'm not being unfair or anything like that. I didn't preach a Mother's Day. This is not a Father's Day sermon. This is a sermon on one of the most richest, wonderful doctrines in the Scripture, and that is the doctrine of our sonship. That is the doctrine that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ... If you have abandoned trust in yourself, come to the end of yourself and receive Jesus as your Savior. That free gift. You said, I can't make it anymore. I can't do it anymore. Where do I turn? Whether it's from shame or guilt or whatever it might be. And you say, Father, accept me because of Jesus. It's as simple as that. It's not really that big a deal. Accept me because of Jesus. Not only are you forgiven, not only are you declared right, you are adopted into God's family. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and I should add, and a daughter. You are a child of God. So this is a sermon not just for fathers. This is a sermon for believers in Jesus Christ. But let's be honest for a second. Let's admit to ourselves we have a problem. See, we all tend to see, we tend to view, we tend to experience this aspect of our relationship with God through the lens of our earthly father and our earthly relationships. Now, for many of us, we've had great relationships with our fathers, so it's not too much of a hindrance. But for many of us, we've had different experiences. We may look and remember our fathers being hard, difficult to please, or authoritarian, maybe even abusive 
or maybe we struggle with abandonment. My prayer for all of us is that our view of God as our Heavenly Father and what it means to be adopted into his family will be shaped by the scriptures. And my prayer for us this morning is we fall in love afresh. We're given a new confidence, a new security, a new assurance, a new intimacy of what it means to call God our Father and for us to be his sons and our daughters. Listen to this quote by J.I. Packer. Now, not every quote that I read, I don't recommend every book from every quote, okay? I read widely, but there are some things I'm going to recommend you read, and I'll tell you what, J.I. Packer's Knowing God is one of them. It is one of the classic books of theology, and I think on one of the best books of theology, the best chapter in the best book of theology is his chapter on adoption. Listen to this quote. J.I. Packer writes, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought, that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Let me illustrate it this way. Take the concept of our self-image. Now, I'm not promoting the popular concept or the psychological concept of self-image, but your view of yourself will govern what you project to others. And so for most of us, if we're honest, again, I'm calling us to honesty here, for most of us, our self-image to some degree or another is controlled by our performance. If I view myself, fundamentally feel good about myself as successful, looking good, feeling good. I project a confident and positive image to the world. But if I feel mostly shame and weakness, I may promote a negative or needy image of myself to the world. Now, in this quote by Packer, his proposition concerning the biblical doctrine of adoption is that if the reality that we are children of God, adopted sons and daughters of the living God, does not control our entire outlook on life, then we do not have a very good understanding of Christianity at all. If the reality of our adoption does not govern our image of ourselves, God and life, then we do not get Christianity. We simply do not get it. We may believe it and believe it at an intellectual level, but functionally, it is not governing our relationships, our love for God, our love for one another, and our love for the world, our love for our neighbors. Let me do what I hate doing, but I know I have to do, so I'll do it anyway. Let me be vulnerable with you. Oh, it's so hard as a preacher to do that. But let me, be vul let me give you a personal example of how my image of myself can be governed at le or at least how I'm still susceptible to it being governed by my performance rather than the reality of the fact that I'm God's son. OK? 
Okay? If I preach well, or lead worship well, or at least perceive of myself of preaching or teaching, or whatever it is I'm performing well, I'm more likely to be more outgoing in my greeting of you all after service, more likely to be positively engaged with Evie during lunch and during the afternoon. But if my perception of my preaching, my leading, my teaching is, that was a dog again, how can I do that? Oh, Jeff, here we go again. Guess what, here I go, withdrawn, moody, irritable, stay away from me, I'm just going to go take a nap. I may not say it, but it sure comes out through my... Mm. Any of you relate to this? Any of you have your moods controlled by what you think of yourself rather than what God thinks of you? See, let me put it to you this way. Not that we can see God, but I want you to imagine for a second God has a face. And if we were to look up at God, what would his face be like towards you? Would you picture him smiling? Or is he stern? Is he smiling? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Or is he, you're such a disappointment. Maybe we need to understand this doctrine of adoption a little bit more, you think? So this is a very important passage. And we're going to look at it from three perspectives. Okay? I want us to know three things. So here comes the outline. That was the introduction. Here. See, I tell you every step of the way where we are in the sermon. You get to know exactly how we're proceeding through this. Three things I want you to know. What is promised, what it's like, and how can we get it in our lives? If I only say this is promised and this is what it's like, and I don't tell you how to get it, we've fallen short. So what it is, what it's like, and how do I get more of it, okay? Take a look at this passage with me, okay? There is an absolutely remarkable, and, and go down to chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, okay? Specifically, verses 4 and 6. There is an absolutely remarkable parallel between these two verses, and this is what is promised. Beginning at chapter 4, verse 4, it says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive adoption as sons. And then verse 6, because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, do you see what's going on here? Do you notice something? Figure out how many of you are astute Bible readers. Did you know what word was repeated twice the word sent. That's a deliberate parallel that Paul is drawing to gain the attention of the readers and the hearers. See, you have two activities of the Trinity going on here. First, we have an agent. God sent his son. And where did the agent go? Into the world. And for what was the son sent? To redeem. And why? that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, so you've got God sending Jesus objectively, historically, externally to us into the world to buy us back from sin, to redeem us, to give us a new status, 
a new legal status, a new position, a new objective status, that of being children of God. But see, how many of us, here's the honesty part again, how many of us really understand this reality? How many of us understand what is promised? Again, I gave an illustration. You want me coming to your home and say, tell me how you don't understand the gospel. Perhaps I'll ask your spouse. You probably don't want me doing that. But I want you thinking. See, and because of that, see, I think many of us, we say we understand the gospel. We understand something negative has been taken from us, our sin. We understand that we've been forgiven. We understand the status change. We understand the historical, objective, legal. But do we really understand functionally the experience of it? Which is why, if you look at verse 6, something else is happening. The second scent. That's absolutely remarkable. It's almost the same language. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son. Now notice where he sent the spirit of his son. Not into the world, but where? What does the text say? Into our hearts. So not into the world, not externally, internally. In us, so that we might experience what was given to us objectively. So in other words, the two sendings, what is promised is that you've got this external objective. God sent his son into the world. And then, because that's not enough. We don't feel that assurance. We don't feel that intimacy. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. See, do you get that? An experience into our hearts. It's kind of like when Jesus was baptized and the heavens were rent open and the spirit fell on Jesus like a dove and there was a voice from heaven and I don't think this was a whispering, calm voice. I think this was thunderous, exploding voice. The voice of the Father saying about His Son, You are my beloved Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, if we are in Christ, if we are in Jesus, that voice of the Father also says to you and I, about you and I, you are my son or daughter. You are my child, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Go back to, what is the Father's face towards you? When you look up at the Father, what is His face towards you like? He is exploding with joy, with ecstasy, with delight in you. You're in Christ. He sees you as legally as if you were Jesus because you're attached to Jesus. You're in Jesus. See, and this means, and this is what we learn from the text, the son goes out to obtain something objective, something out there, external, but the spirit goes to a whole different realm, a whole different situation, and it's the spirit's job to give us that experience. It's the spirit's job to help us feel like sons or daughters. It's the son's job to make us sons or daughters, and it's the spirit's job to make us feel like sons or daughters, whether we feel like it or not. 
whether we perform like it or not. I'll tell another story. Years ago, and I mean years ago, probably almost 30 years ago now, Evie and I were living in Philadelphia, and we went through the ministry, the program. It's called Sonship, which is a discipleship program that was headed by a ministry. It's now called Surge. used to be called World Harvest Mission. And our Sonship counselor gave us the following illustration. And it had to be powerful to me because I don't remember anything from 30 minutes ago, let alone 30 years ago. But he called this story, he called this illustration that I think illustrates what we're talking about here, from the prison to the palace. And it goes like this. He says, so if you're a non-Christian, you're in the prison. You're in the prison. Really, objectively, historically, in every way, you're in prison to sin, to yourself. That's, That's your status. That's your experience, both the external and the internal. They're the same thing. But then you become a Christian. You become a Christian, and you're set free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And as we've learned today, we're adopted into God's family. And we're taken into God's home. So you're a prison. You've been in prison for however many years or whatever. And you come out and you're like, what happens now? Where do I go? And they take you to God's house. Into God's family. And it's a remarkable palace. Just this amazing palace. And you're like, do I need to clean up? haven't showered in 30 years. What do I look like? What do I smell like? This is all. Nope. You're just invited. You're adopted into God's palace. Now, when you enter the palace, what's the first room you come into? You enter and you come into the foyer, right? The entryway, the the narthex, you would call it. And you enter, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. But is that where the, is that the center of the palace? Is that where relationship takes place? Is that where intimacy and communion and the sense of assurance and the sense of I can really just be myself, I can fall apart, doesn't take place in the narthex or the foyer, does it? It takes place in the center of the house, the banquet hall, the banquet room. Now, here's the issue for many of us. Many of us are content and maybe not even aware that we're living most of our lives in the narthex, we're out there and we're kind of going, huh, that looks kind of fun in there. wonder how I get in. How do I get into the, I'm in the foyer, nice chandelier, but they're serving prime rib in there. And do you see the size of the chicken wings? How do I get to the banquet table? The experience of the Spirit bringing you in, and that's what it means to feast on Jesus John chapter 16, verse 14, is a very important verse of the Scriptures. It says that the Spirit brings glory to Jesus. Imagine that the Spirit is not self-centered. The Spirit lives completely to, again, quoting J.I. Packer, he must be my theme for this morning, shine the floodlight, the spotlight on Jesus. The Spirit brings glory to Jesus by taking from what is Jesus's and making it known to us. So the Spirit is constantly, internally saying, look at Jesus. Isn't he great? Isn't he awesome? Isn't he beautiful? Bringing us into the banquet hall. Bringing us into the banquet room. Now I want you to, let me just do one more thing before we go on to what this is like, what its fruit is in our lives. Think about the parable of the prodigal son for a minute. 
Remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal runs off father's inheritance, spends it, wine, women, and song, goes off, lives kind of a reckless life and stuff like that. Here he is, nice Jewish boy living in the pig pen, starts to come to his senses and says, I'll return home. Now, I would propose that this is a real but a faulty repentance, not unlike most of our repentances. It's real. He's really repenting. He came to his senses, but it's faulty. Here's where it's faulty, because when he returns home, what does he say to his father? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. See what he's doing and what we all do, every one of us? That is, we come in and we say, my performance stinks. We judge and evaluate ourselves based on how we perceive we perform. I'm a good enough this. I'm a good enough that. My preaching was good enough. My work was good enough. My children look like this. My grandchildren look like this. I achieve this. I achieve All performance. And if we don't perform up to whatever standard and whoever's standard we're living for, we come in and we say, I don't feel worthy. But if we still want a relationship with God, we kind of rationalize it this way and we go, well, maybe I won't have a father-child relationship with God. I'll have a boss-employee relationship with God. That's all I ask. Let me clean, my, clean up my life, clean myself up, try to do things right. I'm not asking for a whole lot, just my daily bread. We say in our head, I'm saved by grace. I believe I'm a child of God. No, we don't. We don't relate to him that way. Think about it. Why are we so sensitive to criticism? Why are we so defensive? Why are we so ambitious? Why are we so driven? Why can't we talk honestly to each other? Why can't we be vulnerable? Why, if we have to apologize to somebody, does it feel like psychological death? See, again, we have the legal status, but we don't have the experience of it. We need the experience of the Spirit. See, when the prodigal son comes to the father and says, I'm not worthy, what he really means is, I can't believe you're good enough to restore me and bring me back completely. And, of course, what does the father do? The father embarrasses himself by hiking up his skirt while the sun was a long way off, showing he was always looking for the sun, searching for the sun. He runs towards the sun. Do you realize God the Father is running towards you? That's how seen and noticed and looked at and delighted in you are. That God is not waiting for you. He's pursuing you. And he cuts off the son midstream, mid-speech, doesn't even let him get out. And what does he do? He embraces him. And the text there in Luke 15 says that he hugs him and kisses him. And Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says he kisses him wildly. You want to know why it's difficult to accept this? The prodigal and the son, and if we're going to have the experience of sonship, guess what we have to do? We have to give up control. And guess what none of us wants to do? We don't want to give up control. It is way more comfortable to be in control of our life, 
our relationships, what people see about us, what people know about us. If you are going to surrender to, not just intellectually, but surrender to this radical, this scandalous, this if you're saying to yourself it's too good to be true, you're starting to scratch and get to the surface of it. Grace of God, it completely knocks you out from under and takes away any and all control. That's the first point, what it is. Now, what it's like, and I'll be a little briefer on these next two points, but what is it like? David Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans, reminds us of a story of how the Puritan Thomas Goodwin stated the matter. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan, pictures a man walking along a road with his little boy, holding hands, father and son, son and father, beautiful picture. The little boy knows that the man is his father, that his father loves him, but suddenly the father stops, picks up the boy, lifts him into his arms, embraces him and kisses him. The boy is no more his son when he's being embraced than he was before. The father's action has not changed the status of the boy, but oh, the difference in the enjoyment. Now, what does that enjoyment look like? Look with me at verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 gives that little phrase, crying, Abba, Father. See, what does this look like? This looks like intimate dependence. At the same time, the characteristics of this sonship for us is profound passion and profound intimacy. This is something that goes very, very deep in our communion with God. First of all, I want you to notice the word crying. The word crying is the Greek word kratzon. And the literal meaning of it is to wail, to shriek to call out. See, what is the Spirit getting us to do? It's getting us to cry out to God in prayer. To be courageous enough, assured enough, to give us a sense this is the intimate dependence, to be assured enough of our relationship that we begin to pray our fears. We begin to pray, I feel like this. I'm scared of this. I'm profoundly lonely. I'm profoundly, I feel like, whatever. Crying, and this is the second point, Abba, Father. Now, we read in a couple different places that word Abba. And the word literally means baby talk. It is the language of children and their address to the Father. See, I want you to think about this. Tim Keller would often say this. He would say, the child doesn't doubt unless you teach the child to doubt that you love it. What does a child just do in the crib? You go into the crib and the child just raises his hand. The child has a full expectation. I have needs. Meet me. Meet those needs. Take care of me. Here I am. The child doesn't come and say, may I bargain with you, daddy? If you feel like it, I'm a little bit hungry today and could use my baba. The child just cries. I used to say in my first church in Philadelphia, uh, and of course we're talking when Joel was really, really little, 
we could be doing anything serious we were doing. Any service, any session meeting, any meeting I was going to, if my son runs in there and he starts pulling on the pants of my leg, guess what I do? I stop and I pay attention to him. Because he's crying out in his own way, Abba, Father. See, the child just assumes he's that important to the father. Do you want to know something? And that's just a, the slightest picture of how important you are to God. The experience of the Spirit will lead you to cry out, to shriek, to wail, Abba, Father. Last point. I told you these last two points would be a little briefer. How does it come? How do we get it? And the answer here is very important. See, again, I want you to notice something in verse 6 when it says, because you are sons. Because you are sons and daughters. That's why I had us read beginning in chapter 3 when it talks about you were all sons of God through Jesus Christ. Because you were sons. In other words, what this means is you cannot divorce verses 6 and 7 from verses 4 and 5. See, the Spirit comes on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit's willingness, the Spirit's availability, the assurance that we have of this is on the basis of the work of Christ. And therefore, the Spirit's experience is on the basis of the work of Christ. And that's why it's guaranteed. It's not on the basis of, are we having a good day or a bad day? How are we feeling? How did I wake up? How am I viewing myself? It's on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ that is sure and certain and guaranteed. Do you know what this means for us? Kind of what the application is? It means that we have to meditate on who Jesus is and what he has done. The importance of truth. And truth not just here. Not just knowing the propositions. Not less than the propositions, but the propositions are not enough, nor are they sufficient. We have to get the propositions into our heart. That's why in Psalm 1, when it talks about the wise man, what does it say? He delights in the law of God, and on his law, he meditates on it day and night. You know what it means to meditate on something? It means to chew on it. Not to be too earthy with you, but like a cow chews its cud, so are we to choose, and not on just any old truth, but on the truth of Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. To feast on the banquet table. To know if you're having a morning devotion. If you're having your prayer time. If you're going to a Bible study. If you're communing with God. If you're coming to worship. If we are not feasting on the banquet table of Jesus, we've missed it. If we know great commandments, great theology, great principles, and we miss Jesus, we've missed the whole point of it. Because the point of the Bible is to bring us Jesus. And the point of the Holy Spirit is to take us to Jesus. See, when we talk about experience, we're not just kind of talking, make me feel good. Hit me with experience. It's about the experience of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. So friends, this is a simple and yet so challenging application. Are you gazing at Jesus? The simplest thing to do, and yet the most challenging, the hardest thing to do at the same time. Do you know how quickly I want to run to theology? Have you taken a look at my library in there? 
and all the books, and yes, the books are on their shelves now. There are no more boxes in my study. Hallelujah. My knee-jerk default reaction is to run to theology, run to principles, run to performance. My flesh, the world, and the devil wants me going to anything but Jesus. And do you think I'm unique? The flesh, the world, and the devil wants you to run to anything other than Jesus. Wants you to run to your success, wants you to run to anything. But let me tell you, the Spirit loves Jesus, glorifies Jesus, magnifies Jesus, and wants you to find Jesus beautiful. Wants you to gaze at Jesus and find him beautiful. I love how Tim Keller put it when he said, the best way to define this is something is beautiful to you if it is an end in itself. If you are not using it to get something else, See, to find God beautiful means I just want to adore him for the beauty of who he is. Is that what we cry out for? Is that the passion of our hearts? That no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what the circumstance is, we want to find Jesus beautiful. That he's the end in and of himself. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for sending Jesus into the world. And thank you for sending the spirit of Jesus into our hearts. The spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. May we be a people that cries out, Abba, Father. May we be a people learning to cry out, Abba, Father. May we be willing to give up control and surrender. Oh, how we praise you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our final hymn, This Is My Father's World.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.